Today we're following Paul and Barnabas deep into the Turkish countryside to an area without any real Jewish presence, uh, which is a strictly pagan area, uh, worshiping multiple gods, polytheists. Uh, back then, the area in which they were now moving and evangelizing was called Phrygia. Phrygia, you may have heard of it before. Uh, and that fact will be prominent uh, and important to remember in a moment when I get to the introduction. So let's read now God's holy inspired word, Acts 14, verses 8 through 18. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even when these words, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. May God bless his holy word to us this morning. Let me tell you a story that was written by the Roman poet Ovid. Maybe in the recesses of your uh, mind, back in the education you received, maybe you heard of the poet Ovid, he's one of the big three Roman poets. I don't know who the other two are. Uh, it didn't stick in my brain, that part. But Ovid tells this story. He, he wrote it uh, probably around the time of Jesus' birth. That's when he was doing his writing. Sometimes around the time of the birth or early years, very early years of Jesus was, in, was when this story was written. It's part of a larger work uh, called the Metamorphoses. Uh, this is this was written about 40 years before the events that are taking place in the text that was, is before us today. Ovid writes that Zeus and Hermes came disguised as ordinary peasants traveling through the Phrygian countryside, the very countryside through which Paul and Barnabas are traveling in our text today. And these gods began asking the people of the town for a place to sleep that night. They were rejected by all before they came to Bacchus and Philemon's simple rustic cottage. And though the couple were poor, their generosity far surpassed that of their rich neighbors, at whose homes the gods found all the doors bolted and no word of kindness given. 
So wicked were the people of that land. Well, after serving these two guests food and wine, Baucus noticed that although she had refilled her guest's cups many times, the pitcher was still full. Realizing that her guests were gods, she and her husband raised their hands in supplication and implored indulgence for their simple home and fare. Zeus said that they should leave the town he, uh, because he was going to destroy the town and all those who had turned them away and not provided due hospitality. He told Bacchus and Philemon to climb the mountain with him and Hermes, not to turn back until they reached the top. But after they climbed to the summit of the mountain, Bacchus and Philemon looked back on their town and saw that it had been destroyed by a flood and that Zeus had turned their cottage into an ornate temple. And the couple wished to be guardians of that temple, and their wish was granted. And they also asked that when the time came for one of them to die, that the other would die as well. And upon their death, the couple were changed into an intertwining pair of trees. What a way to go. Well, this pagan morality tale uh, was, of course, told to encourage people uh, to be hospitable. You, you never know who you might be entertaining. It might be Zeus and Hermes, and, and if you turn them away, uh, you might get destroyed. Uh, I'm sure that this story was told frequently uh, to the people living, especially in the area in which Paul and Barnabas were moving, because the, the tale is set in their area. It would have had a special meaning to them. Uh, it would have been much on their minds, and when they see Paul and Barnabas do something much more amazing than cause a pitcher to never run out of wine by healing this man who had been crippled from birth, well, these people were not going to make the same mistake as their previous inhospitable Phrygian residents. They immediately get the priest to bring oxen and garlands to the gates and they wanted to make sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas whom they identified as Zeus and Hermes, Roman gods. Now this was certainly the last thing in the world that Paul or Barnabas wanted to occur. And so they stand up and run out into the crowd as they realize what's going on because the people are speaking in Lyconian, a language I'm sure that they did not understand. When they see the priests show up with uh, the oxen to sacrifice, that's setting off the alarm bells. And so Paul runs out and he's shouting to the people, you know, we're just men like you are. And then he begins to speak to the crowds and share them and point them to the true and living God. Now I have a few observations on this text today. Uh, three things that I want to share with you. I want to talk about the priority of evangelism, the method of evangelism, and the message of evangelism. Now, when you look at this passage, I want you to notice something. Notice that this particular miracle is recorded by Luke. Why this one and not others? Um, we've been told back up in verse 3, we looked at last week, that it had been granted that signs and wonders were done by Paul and Barnabas, but we were not told any details about those signs and wonders. They certainly involved healings, I'm sure. But 
here we are. Luke decides to give a detailed account of this particular healing. This healing of a crippled man. Now, of course, it's an extraordinary series of events that would certainly be of interest to any reader, and I'm sure was, uh, was uh, of interest to Luke and, and his audience. But if we look at the book of Acts as a whole, we see that the inclusion of this miracle is certainly not a random choice by Luke. Do you remember the first miracle that was recorded after Pentecost? It's in Acts 3, after the church is formed and growing in Jerusalem. Peter and John are going to the temple, and what do they encounter there? A man who was lame from birth, just like this man. Peter and John are coming to the temple, and there they encounter this cripple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple... This man asked them for alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood, began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Now you compare that, Acts 3, with what's going on here in verses 9 and 10. He was listening, this lame man was listening to Paul speaking, and Paul looks intently at him, and seeing that he had faith be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprung up and began walking. So they're very similar. Similar. You have the, the gaze of the apostle, and you have the words to rise up and walk, and then you have the miracle itself. Well, I think the Lord is using uh, Luke here to make a point. Jesus healed the man through Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, right in the heart of Jerusalem at the temple. The town, uh, well, well, the town in which they were in now, Lystra, was very far from the temple in Jerusalem. This town was the first that we have recorded where they did not first preach in a synagogue because there really was not any Jewish presence in this town. They had gone out into the boonies. Uh, they had gotten off the beaten path and, and gone to where there was not a concentration of people, but into the countryside where they were sharing the gospel. And so there was no real Jewish presence there until the Jews show up in a few verses later from Pisidian Antioch and, and larger cities in Iconium, and they stir up the crowds to stone Paul. There was a temple in Lystra, but it wasn't the temple to the living God. There was a temple there to Zeus. And the point that is being made here by having these two very similar miracles recorded in the same way is that when Jesus said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, he was claiming dominion over the entire earth. 
there is not one square inch of the earth where the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot reach and change lives. It changed lives in Jerusalem, and now it's changing lives in the pagan Phrygian countryside. It changed lives at the door of the temple of Jerusalem. It's changing lives at the door of the temple of Zeus. Christ will have dominion, and he does. And it's being expressed here as the gospel is going forth and conquering people's hearts and changing their lives. You know, sometimes we talk about closed countries and we talk about missions. There are certain countries that you can't just say, I'm going to go into and start sharing the gospel. You know, you, you won't be allowed to go in. Uh, if you do happen to go in, you could be killed, thrown in prison, uh, all sorts of manner of things can happen to you. And we might refer to those as closed countries, but there is no such thing as a closed country to the Lord Jesus Christ. Men and devils can do what they will to halt the progress of the message of Jesus. But to Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The gospel can penetrate wherever Jesus decides for it to penetrate. The whole earth is his, and he's going to claim people from everywhere. The gospel can penetrate every household on the Gulf Coast. Do you believe that? It can. If it can go right to the door of the temple of Zeus and change people's lives, it can certainly do it here. All Jesus needs is a willing and available witness to take it there. Someone willing to share it no matter the cost or the inconvenience or the difficulty or the danger. When you think about closed countries, yes, people can sneak in there and share the gospel. They risk their lives, just as Paul did. And that has happened throughout the history of the church. People have gone into places, shared the gospel where it was dangerous. Korea was one of those places. A hundred or so years ago, there were no Christians in Korea. And when missionaries went there, they were, they were tortured and put to death. Now, a hundred years later, Korea is the second largest missions-sending country in the world, second only to the United States, will probably overtake us one day with their zeal for missions. The gospel can change lives wherever, and it can break down barriers against it. And that's what's going on here. And Luke's trying to point that out to us. They're going to stone Paul for what he's doing here. You look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, what did poor Paul do at that point? Did he go home? <laughs> did he quit? Did he say, oh, this is too difficult. Well, they obviously don't want to hear the gospel here. I better go somewhere else. We keep on reading, it says this, But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, which is right next door. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, 
they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What a great example. Paul is like the energizer bunny of, of preachers. He just keeps going and going. He keeps on, he keeps on, he keeps on proclaiming the gospel. Paul tells the Corinthians something of his life. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. That's, all, that's almost two hundred lashes. Not at once, but five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That happened here. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Why would he go through all of that? Because he was wanting to serve Christ by proclaiming the gospel far and wide. And just because a few people threw rocks at him, he didn't quit. <laughs> it's not a small thing to have a bunch of mob of people throwing rocks at you, but it happened to him, but he continued on. Through many tribulations, he said, we must enter the kingdom of God. These were his tribulations, and he was serving Christ in doing that. Do we want our church to grow? Well, it's not going to happen until we start witnessing for Christ, if we start taking the gospel out like Paul and Barnabas did. We need to start with our neighbors. This is, this is a suggestion. Start with those who are closest to you. That's our Jerusalem. That's your Jerusalem. Begin there and move out. You know, we just think about the people around us. And I'm, I'm speaking to myself as well. We look at just the houses that are next door to cross the street. And we have it nice because, you know, all we've got is east, uh, east, west, and north. There's not much south that we can witness to. I guess we could get on the beach, but, you know, we've only got three sides that we've got to worry about. And we can go out and start going, you know, how are we going to penetrate that house and that house and that house? How are we going to get to know those people? How are we going to share the gospel with them? That's the kind of mentality that Paul had. You know, yeah, they might not like it, they might not want to hear it, but I'm going to go share it with them anyway. I'm going to try to build some sort of relationship where I can tell them this good news of Jesus Christ. If we want our church to grow, that's how it's going to have to happen. Churches that sit around waiting for new people to show up out of the blue, they, those churches grow old and they die until someone else buys the building who is vibrant and growing and willing to go out into the neighborhood and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're growing because that's what they're doing. They're out sharing about Jesus. And when Jesus is proclaimed, even in the face of opposition, he has his people whom, who will respond to the good news of Christ. Now, I'm not asking you to go out and start knocking on doors today. Uh, but I am asking you to start praying about it. Start thinking about it. You know, 
and maybe it's not your neighbors, maybe it's people at your workplace, maybe it's members of your family, you know, whatever it might be, wherever you have an influence, wherever you can build a relationship, think about that and start praying about that and start thinking about how can I build a relationship with that person, get to know them, and come to a place where I can share the gospel with them, where I can build a bridge to, to cross with the gospel. You know, look at all the gray hairs around us. They're right here. We're not getting any younger. If not now, when? And if not you, then who? As the old saying goes. Well, that's the priority of evangelism. That's what Paul was all about and what we want to be all about too if we want to grow. But look at his, briefly at his method. If we compare this message to the one Paul delivered in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch in chapter 13, we've, we find that it is significantly different. The difference lies not in the basic message of the gospel, but in the audience's knowledge of the things of God. Back in chapter 13, uh, Paul refers to the history of Israel. He talked about the law of Moses. He talked about John the Baptist. He shared the details of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Uh, and he quotes the scriptures. But he doesn't do any of that here because the people in Lystra were not familiar with any of these things. It would have been you know, incomprehensible to them to hear about the law of Moses. They'd never heard of that. So Paul begins his message in a different place. He goes to what is familiar to all humans, creation. Now there was a time when Christians could quote the Bible and refer to a belief in God when they went about sharing the gospel in their neighborhoods and amongst their spheres of influence. This was true especially in the South where most everybody, uh, practically everyone, had a church background. They had some knowledge of the Bible, even if they weren't regular attenders at this point in their lives. Well, that day is quickly passing, and we can no longer assume that people even believe in God. And we have to keep that in mind as we go out. Evangelism today will look more like what Paul did in Lystra than what he did in Pisidian Antioch. We're dealing with people who are basically pagans all around us. Bottom line is, our method should be to start where people are, to, to really understand, do they have any church background? Do they know anything about the Scriptures? Probably not, because not even a lot of Christians know a lot about the Scriptures these days, even ones who style themselves as evangelicals. So we have to take a few steps back from where we, maybe what we had learned about evangelism in years past. And that's what we see in Paul's methods as he goes around and encounters different people. Well, let's finally, let's look at the message very quickly. Paul's message is that they proclaim the good news, the gospel, that they should turn or convert from these vain, empty, pointless, purposeless things and turn to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything else. That's his message that he vehemently shares as they are trying to make sacrifice to him. Turn to the living God, not to false idols, not to false gods. He does two things. He points to the vanity of their lifestyle, and as well, he, point, he appeals to their innate knowledge of God. 
First of all, these vain things, he calls them. Turn from these vain things to a living God. Purposeless, pointless things. They were worshipping false gods, Zeus and Hermes and, and, and others, the pantheon of, of Roman and Greek gods. These were idols, and that kept them enslaved. You, you remember why they are attempting to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, because they think they're Zeus and Hermes. And if they don't show hospitality to these gods walking around, then those gods might get angry with them and destroy them. So they, they are trying to appease Paul and Barnabas that they think are gods because they are afraid of them. They are enslaved in their way of thinking and they think they have to appease the gods so that they will bless them. Well, modern idolatry and the false worship we see here, uh, they're very similar. They look a little different. But it's basically the same. Instead of worshiping made-up deities... People make idols out of money, uh, relationships, status, beauty, etc. And I often speak of this. You've heard me say things like this before. But I say it so much because it's a basic human tendency to worship created things rather than the Creator, to put them in the place of God instead of worshiping the living and true God. Everyone's born with this tendency. We're not immune from falling into it, even as Christians. We have to be careful about idolatry. At the very last verse of John, 1 John, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The, the last words he shares with those people. Because it's a tendency, even for Christians. One example, probably the, the most common one in our day, money. Money, uh, people, whether you're rich or poor, can think that money will solve all their problems. If I just had money, my life would be good. If I just had more money, my life would be better. If I don't have money, then my life is a disaster and not worth living. See, when someone thinks this way at that point, their purpose in life becomes to make money. And that's what drives them. That's where their hopes are placed. That's where they find their greatest pleasure and experience their greatest disappointments. That's where they find themselves getting angry when they're blocked from making money and when they find their greatest joy when they make lots of money. And in order to secure money, people will go to great lengths. They spend their time, their energy, all their efforts in making more money. It drives their lives. They become slaves to it. They sacrifice to get it. Sometimes they'll even break the law to get it. It dictates everything about their lives. See, that's idolatry. The God has captured you, and you're serving that God. That's modern-day idolatry, and you can substitute a number of things for money, as we've talked about a number of times. But this is no different than worshiping Zeus or Hermes or any other false god. It's vain. It has no purpose. It will not guarantee happiness. I mean, you know, money, money cannot buy happiness. People say it all the time but we don't seem to learn that lesson. It doesn't make your life secure. You know, the, the, the parable that Jesus told. The guy had built all of his barns. He, you know, he was flourishing. He was going to make bigger barns, and then he died. Somebody else got all of his barns and all of his money. He couldn't take it with him. When you die, you'll not take it with you into eternity, and it won't save you. It's Zeus worship. If I don't have any money, my life will be no good. 
If I don't have Zeus's favor, my life won't be good. Therefore, I'm going to sacrifice to Zeus. Therefore, I'm going to make sure I have money. See, it's slavery, it's vanity, it's pointless. The idolatrous thinking of the Lystrans is no different than the idolatrous thinking today. Paul also notes in verse 16, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. In other words, Paul is saying, God has allowed you to wallow in that mess of vanity. He's allowed it to go on. But the time is past that. You need to move past that vanity and turn to a living God. Leave all that vanity and enslavement in the rearview mirror and serve a living God who is kind and good and has already been looking out for you. He's been dropping hints about his character by giving you rain and food and providing for all your needs. Now see, this is legitimate evangelism for us today. To lead people to the one who can rescue them from the vanity of this life that is being espoused in our culture. You know, to have goods and money and everything that the world says that we must have in order to be legitimate. It's Zeus worship all the same. As we look around us, and, and as you know, Paul said, in the midst of the vanity of your lives, the living God has been showing mercy. Uh, we can say to people, look, in the midst of the futility of this, I'm going I'm to show you a different way where you don't have to be enslaved to all these things that the world is promoting. There's a better way, a living God who is good and merciful. And then Paul, secondly, he appeals to their innate knowledge of God. And I'll just refer you to Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain. It's plain to people. There are no real atheists in the world. They may say they are, but every human being has an innate knowledge of God that they suppress in unrighteousness, Paul says. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he goes on to show how God has allowed them, just like he said in verse 16, God has allowed them to, to go their own way and, and it's a downward spiral. It talks about homosexuality there. It talks about all kinds of different sins that people are wallowing in. It sounds everything a bit about life in America today because people have pushed away the knowledge of God. They've turned to vain things instead of the living and true, merciful and kind God who has not only provided the good things that we see around us, but a way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Look around you. Look at the vanity of people's lives and recognize their need for a Savior and that we have the answer. We have this good news to share with people. People who know in their heart that there is a God, a living God, who will go and point them to Him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would inspire us to go and share this good news of salvation with a lost and dying world. Lord, deliver us from our idolatry 
uh, in our, the, the things that we worship in, in front of you. Help us to be holy and to be uh, like Christ so that we can not only speak about Christ, but we can point people to Christ with our lives. Not to be holier than thou, not to be Pharisees or, or prideful, but Lord, to really know you, to walk in your paths, to be obedient to you because of all the grace and the mercy that you've shown to us. We are your children, and you have our best interests at heart, and that you deliver us from these vain things. Lord, we pray that we would be able to share that message. Help us have a, a strategy as individuals and as a church to reach out to those who are lost around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.